This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to mclanahanacademy.com, enroll today, and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 605. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Why are you there? Give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook, the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, you get great deals on new and forthcoming courses. Of course, I have a new course out right now, 25 People Who Changed America. And if you want to pick that up for a great deal, get on that email list so you're going to get good coupons. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. Click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, share the podcast around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcast. Rate, review, subscribe. That's a great way to support the show. Let people know you like it. Let people know you're thinking locally, acting locally. That's how we grow the audience. All right, well, this is a user, or I should say user, listener-generated episode. It comes from a friend of mine, and I hadn't read this piece. I don't subscribe to the New York Times, and I don't often follow what happens in the New York Times, but every now and then you get something, an op-ed that comes out that you want to read. And so he sent this along to me, and I thought it was a very interesting op-ed, not good, but interesting. And I think it's interesting because it's half-truths. So anytime you have half-truths, you have half-lies. And the, the problem with this particular op-ed is that it's designed, I mean, it's an op-ed, so it's an opinion piece, but it's designed to make you think that anyone that believes in a real federal republic, in a federation of states, is completely misguided. That the founding generation themselves believed in a strong national government where the states are subservient to the central authority. And, of course, that would mean that anything the general government does is supreme, anything, that there's no check on power from the center. This is a real issue in American politics, because essentially what we have today is the same argument that's been going on for over 200 years. How much power does the central authority have? How much power do the states have? And if you listen to this particular op-ed, you would think the states have no powers. Essentially, they're uh, subdivisions of the general government. There are districts like you would have in, say, the Hunger Games. Or, more importantly, an American example, you would have during military reconstruction, right? We had during military reconstruction, the Congress created military districts. We no longer had states. The Congress said that we can abolish states. Now, that would have been news to the founding generation. 
Because this issue was actually discussed in Philadelphia when the Constitution was being drafted. Then, of course, when you go through the ratification process, it was discussed quite a lot. Now, what this piece does is use a couple of uh, major historians to buttress its points. And the author uses James Madison himself to prove that the central authority is supreme. So let me read this piece. It's by Jamel Bowie. And anytime you say it's by Jamel Bowie, you're going to think, well, my gosh, it's going to be awful. But like I said, there's some truth to some of the things he's saying here. You can't, you can't deny that Madison said these things. But context matters. How these things were said and why they were said and the time that they were said matters. And then, of course, it ignores Madison's career after the Constitution was ratified and while Madison was in Congress and, of course, in other positions of power in the general government. So this piece was published on March 15th. In the New York Times, you're going to need a subscription to read it unless you get like your one free article a month. You could go out there and read that. But it says this, quote, As millions of Americans see it, the Constitution was written to protect and extend the powers and prerogatives of the states. Now, that is a loaded statement. It's bunk. And let me explain why. As millions of Americans see it, the Constitution was written to protect and extend the powers and prerogatives of the states. I don't know anyone that argues that. Now, I would know. I would say that protect the powers of the states? No, I don't think anybody argues that either. What they would say is the general government, the Constitution was established to limit the powers of the central authority. And that is by nature a written Constitution. You see... The Brits have a constitution, too. It's unwritten. I remember I was on a mainstream talk show, and I made the point the British had a constitution. No, they don't have a constitution. They don't have a constitution at all. There's nothing there. Well, certainly there is. It's the unwritten constitution that the courts decide. You see, this is exactly what Bowie wants to do. He wants the courts to decide what happens for the general government. Now, he would say at the end that that may not be the case, but this is exactly what he wants. He wants the central authority to have unlimited powers and if the states get in the way for the courts to override those things. He wants a common law system where the courts decide what is legal and what is not. And that's what you would get out of a system like the British. So their constitution is all these little scrolls stuck at Westminster, right? There's, there's, you think of Big Ben, there's another tower there. And that tower contains all of the laws that have ever been written in Britain, and many of them are tiny little scrolls. It could be things like little divorce proceedings that they have in there. It's amazing, but that's the British Constitution. Then, of course, you also have the English Bill of Rights, which the form of that was taken for the Declaration of Independence, which, by the way, is not a document that would be upheld in court, contrary to what Michael Anton has to say. You can't. It's a... Decent, it's a defounding document in many ways. It's a secession document. So you have this statement that's loaded from the beginning. It's a straw man. Millions of Americans see it. Well, show me evidence of that. That millions of Americans see it this way that you're describing it. Because you know what? I don't know anyone that sees it that way. And I'm on that side. I've never had anyone say to me, you know what the Constitution is there to do? It's there to protect and extend the powers of the states. No, 
The Constitution was there to create a stronger central government, but limited by the document itself to contain the powers of the central authority, those powers which are delegated, which he gets into in the Tenth Amendment. But not just that. If you look at Article 1, it says very clearly, all legislative power is herein granted. Now, who is doing the granting? Well, it would be the people of the states, but more importantly, all legislative powers here and granted. So only those that are granted, the general government can do. It established a limited national government. No, that's not what they would argue. It established a limited federal republic and preserved for state governments any number of rights and responsibilities. Well, that last statement is true. It didn't create a national government. It created a federal government. Confederal and federal mean the same thing. It created a federal government. This was used. Anyone who called it a national government was defeated in Philadelphia. See, so Bowie is playing fast and loose with the facts of the Philadelphia Convention and the ratification process. But you would expect nothing less from someone who's this stupid. And he's stupid. The whole point of the Constitution in this view is to restrain the federal government as much as possible. Well, yeah, you have a written constitution that limits the powers of the center based on what's delegated in the document or granted, however you want to say it. Of course, he's going to use some arguments here that I'll be able to blast apart into smithereens. If there is one reason beyond partisanship that anyone is attracted to a plainly deficient idea like the independent state legislature doctrine, which I wrote about last week, it is that it's in line with the widespread belief that the state governments have pride of place within the American constitutional order. They do. They were the fourth leg of the stool. You have the three branches of the federal government, and then you have the states. Because the states, as Tench Cox argued, could do all these things that the central government cannot do. So they would be part of the American constitutional order. What other, what other th- way could you describe it? Of course, they have a quote-unquote pride of place, but I don't even get into the state, the independent state legislature doctrine. I, I, mean, I don't even know what the hell that is, but fine. I mean, I'll have to go, I guess, go back and read exactly what he's talking about there. Uh, but then he says this, but this is a misunderstanding. This is a misunderstanding. You see, this isn't true to Jamel Bowie because Jamel Bowie is an idiot. Even in the age when state governments were more independent and autonomous than they are today, the nearly 80 years between ratification and Appomattox, it was still understood that states were subordinate to the federal government. Now, let me say this. This is true in the powers that are granted to the central authority, which would be two things if you believe the founding generation. Commerce and defense. So I go through this in my originalist papers class. I go through this in my American Constitution class. I go through this in my Founding Father's Guide to the Constitution. This is true in those two areas. And let me explain. If you look at the powers granted in, say, Article 1, Section 8, there's a corresponding prohibition on those powers for the states to do those things in Article 1, Section 10. So, for example, states cannot have armies, right? They can have militias, but they can't raise an army. They can't create treaties. They can't do these things. And when I say they can't raise them, they can't have a national army or, you know, central army. They can't do that. They can't coin their own money. 
They can use gold and silver as legal tender. But I mean, when you look at the powers that are given to the central authority, the states cannot do those things. It's, it's a give and take. But everything else that's not listed in Article 1, Section 10 is for the states to do. So I'm not clear where he's getting this idea that the state government's more independent and autonomous. They're still independent and autonomous. Nothing's changed. Not one thing has changed. The Constitution hasn't changed. Well, what about the amendments to the Constitution? What about the 14th Amendment? Well, if you look at the 14th Amendment, it didn't do anything like that. Not the original 14th Amendment. Now, with the way the courts have interpreted it, to see, this is where Bowie, this is the common law, right? But that's not the way it was designed. In turn, the federal government had considerable power to act on and influence the states. Why else would the statesmen of antebellum South Carolina develop a theory of nullification, if not to challenge the prevailing view that states were bound to submit to the will of the national government? Well, they, first of all, John C. Calhoun did not invent nullification. That would be um, the founding generation during the Stamp Act crisis. Oh, yeah. And then the guy that he says refuted all of this idea of states having powers, James Madison and, of course, Thomas Jefferson in 1798. Now, here's what Calhoun did say, though. He said, he said, in 1837, look, if the Congress can pass an unconstitutional tariff, they can pass anything they want. They can pass an, a law to abolish slavery if they choose to do so. So if slavery is such a moral evil, as you're saying it is, well, then we should abolish it right now. But nobody is willing to do that right now. So he was pointing out the hypocrisy of all the people sitting in that Congress by saying these things. But he certainly said the central government had unlimited powers, and they had unlimited powers because there's no check if you can't have the states stand up to the central authority. Now, of course, we know that they could, and they would. South Carolina actually nullified the tariff, and then they nullified the force bill. The tariff wasn't enforced. We know the states can do it. It's not that Calhoun invented this. In fact, you could go back to the founding generation. Or, I mean, look at the Hartford Convention, right? There was discussion of nullification there. New England was essentially nullifying federal laws in support of the war. Now, that would be real unconstitutional nullification. See, there is unconstitutional nullification. It's when the states nullify certainly constitutional laws. And in that particular case, that's exactly what they were doing. But he continues, go back a little further to the first years of the American Republic, and you will see that one of the key goals of the Constitution was to curb the power of the states and leash them to the broader authority of a new national government led by a powerful legislature and an unusually strong elected executive. Except that's not the way it was sold to the states. First of all, it was never sold as a national government. It was sold as kind of a hybrid Frankenstein of federalism and nationalism. This is exactly what Madison said in the, uh, in the uh, Federalist Papers. And the unusually strong executive? No, 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 no. Hamilton himself... And Federalist 69 said the president is weak. The president doesn't have all these things that the king of Great Britain has. It's not a strong executive. So see, Bowie again is playing fast and loose with the facts. Was it designed to create a stronger national government? Absolutely. Was it designed to do these things? Absolutely not. It was designed to create a stronger central government, a general government, but not a national government. 
A month before he arrived in Philadelphia as one of the 55 delegates to the convention called to amend the Articles of Confederation, James Madison, then a 36-year-old representative to the Congress of the Confederation from Virginia, wrote a detailed critique of the existing American government, honing in on what he thought was its most glaring weakness, the states themselves. And this is true. But is that what came out of Philadelphia? No. In fact, Madison wanted a, he wanted a national government. So did Alexander Hamilton. So did Governor Morris. So did James Wilson. You know what? They all lost. <laughs> he doesn't say that. Yeah, this is what Madison said. That's not what they got. That's the important point. His vices of the political system of the United States included the failures of states to comply with the constitutional requisitions, meaning they refused to contribute to the general fund, the encroachments by the states on the federal authority. Examples of this are numerous, and repetitions may be foreseen in almost every case where any favored object of a state shall present a temptation, trespasses on the states of the rights of each other, and want of concern in matters where common interest requires it. Well, I mean, all this is true. This is the arguments that were made against the Articles of Confederation. What's interesting is that uh, what we get is still a federal government. In fact, John Rutledge of South Carolina, when a negative was proposed by the central authority, so the central authority can negate state laws, John Rutledge stood up and said, that alone ought to damn the Constitution. And you know what? It didn't pass. So we didn't have a federal negative of state laws. Didn't have, it's not in the Constitution. How much has the dignity, interest, and revenue suffered from this cause, Madison asked. Instances of inferior moment are the want of uniformity in the laws concerning naturalization and literary property, of provisions of national seminaries for grants of incorporation for national purposes, for canals and other works of general utility, which may at present be defeated by the Perverseness of particular states whose concurrence is necessary. Well, th this is what people were saying, but you know what? All those things didn't get added to the Constitution. You see, Madison and Hamilton had this long walk, and they talked about a bank, and they agreed, we're not going to put that in the Constitution because it would be defeated. We'll have to deal with this later. Now, this is why Hamilton was shocked when Madison was against the bank <laughs> that he said we needed because, he, wait a second here, you said this is a good idea, but of course it wasn't constitutional. Right? So this is the important point in all of this. In a letter to Edmund Randolph, then serving as governor of Virginia, Madison said outright that an individual independence of the states is utterly irreconcilable with the idea of an aggregate sovereignty. And while it may be impractical to try to achieve a total consolidation of the states into one simple republic, Madison thought that the convention should nevertheless try to find a middle ground that will at once support a due supremacy of the national authority and leave and force the local authority so far as they can be subordinately useful. So this is what he said. But that's not what we got. Right? This is before the convention. So that's the key. Now, he's going to get into the ratification in a minute, and I'll, and I'll cover that. Madison's deep frustration with the states was most evident in his call for a federal negative in all cases whatsoever on the legislature act, legislative acts of the states as the King of Great Britain heretofore had. And while this did not make it into the final version of the Constitution, other provisions to curb the power of the states did. No, they didn't. 
So he even admits, well, wait, there was no negative on, there's no federal negative of state laws. This is true. The founding generation would have been shocked by the general government knocking down state laws as they do today. In fact, John Marshall himself said this would never happen. And what does John Marshall do as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court? This, that, right? So they had to sell the document to people saying, well, we're never going to do this. We're never, the states will never be subordinate to the general authority in the areas in which they are sovereign, which is all of these things. Even James Wilson in the State House Yard speech, the nationalist, said, you know what? All the general government can do are these things that we list in the document. The states can do everything else. That is how the Constitution was understood in October of 1787, barely a month after the ink dried on the document. Not even a month, in fact. Congress is brought in a nearly unlimited power to levy taxes. It's limitless power to raise and maintain an army. It's power to regulate interstate and foreign commerce. And it's general grant to do whatever is necessary and proper to fulfill its obligations. Or our direct response to the weakness of the articles and the way that weakness empowers states to run roughshod over common interests. Well, what did that necessary and proper clause mean? So this is funny. He throws it in there. He thinks it's a you-can-do-anything-you-want-to-do clause, but that's not what it really is. The necessary and proper clause could have been added to every single power granted in Article 1, Section 8. This is how it was argued in the ratification conventions, and it didn't grant any power beyond what was already listed there. So you know what? It didn't say you can charter a corporation or a bank. It didn't say you can pass a protective tariff. It didn't say you could do any of that stuff. So it was limited by what the powers were expected granted or delegated. I'll even use expressly, even though Bowie says, well, that's not what they wanted. But it is what they wanted. Yes, it has power to uh, levy taxes. So do the states. In fact, one of the interesting things about this, and I go on this in originalist papers, is there was an argument made in the ratifying conventions that the, the opponents would say, well, this is going to mean the states won't be able to raise any taxes because the federal taxes will swallow them up. And you know what the proponents of the document said? No, no, no. Federal taxes are going to be limited. So limited because we only have these things to do. Everything else happens in the states. The states are going to pass whatever taxes they want. They can do whatever they want. Limitless power to raise and maintain an army. Limitless is the wrong word here. Congress has to appropriate every two years. And every two years it has to re-up the army. So yes, it can raise an army. Congress can raise an army. This is true. But the states also have militias. And uh, the militias were relied upon to essentially outfit the United States Army up until about World War I. They, the Congress would call for troops and the states would get involved and it would work that way. It's power to regulate interstate and foreign commerce. Well, this is something that was recognized even in the Articles of Confederation, and it's general grant to do whatever. I mean, this is, this is the problem. He doesn't even understand the necessary and proper clause. The supremacy, here is, the, here is, his, here is his grand knife in, uh, in the side of those who say that the general government is limited. Because the supremacy clause, the Constitution and the laws of the United States, shall be made in pursuance thereof. He didn't, he didn't leave that out. Usually they leave that part out. 
And all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding is likewise a product of the framers' desire to bring state governments to heal as much as possible. Um, it says only laws made in pursuance of the Constitution, not those that aren't made in pursuance of the Constitution. In other words, if it's, not, if it's not constitutional, it's no law. The founding generation argued this. Not John C. Calhoun. He continues, It is not for nothing that opponents of the Constitution singled out its treatment of the states as an egregious assault on the freedom of the American people. To the anti-federalists, the Constitution rep represented a repu uh, repudiation I'm sorry, of everything that America had fought for. The historian Gordon, Gordon Wood writes in The Creation of the American Republic, In the context of conventional 18th century political thought, the Constitution obviously represented a reinforcement of energy at the expense of liberty, a startling strengthening of the ruler's power at the expense of the people's participation in the government. Well, this is true. I mean, the, the opponents of the document saw it as a headlong rush into extreme centralization. The part that's missing in that is that the proponents of the document said it wasn't. <laughs> you see, so what Bowie, it's ingenious. He's doing what Joseph Story did in his commentaries on the Constitution. You see, the opponents said the document would create the strong central authority. They were right. But the proponents of the document said it didn't. This is the originalist papers. This is me going back and finding all these documents in favor of the Constitution, not those against it, in favor of the Constitution. 101 of them, by the way, that showed that the Constitution was not designed to do exactly what Jamel Bowie is saying it was designed to do, or Joseph Story, or John Marshall, or James Wilson, or Alexander Hamilton. Well, take your pick of any nationalists following the ratification of the document. Because you know what? James Wilson and Alexander Hamilton and John Marshall... They all said the exact opposite when it was going through ratification. So you just use their words against them. Right? This is the whole point. So you need that originalist papers class at McLeanahan Academy. By the way, if you're getting this, this is last week to get it for the deal you can get it for now. If you're on my email list, you're getting that deal. is 25% off at the current price, which goes up in April. So if you don't get it now for 25% off, you will never see it for that price again. You want to head over to McClanahan Academy. You want to get on my email list, get that coupon. And then head to McClanahan Academy and get that class for 25% off at the price it is right now, March of 2022, because in April of 2022, there is going to be a slight price increase. And you'll never see it for this price again. Bowie says, one rejoinder here is simply the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution, which says that the power is not delegated to the United States, United States by the Constitution, excuse me, nor prohibited by it to the states, or reserved to the states respectively or to the people. This, for many conservatives, is an affirmation of the rights of the states, one that proves the intent of the framers to protect the authority of state governments. Well, that's true. It, it does. And he's saying one rejoinder, but, I mean, so he's going to try to knock this over, which is hilarious when he tries to do it. But for Madison who wrote the amendment. Well, he wrote the amendment after several states sent, sent proposed amendments. At the top of most was a 10th amendment, by the way. That was the most important. And he leaves out, conveniently leaves out, the preamble to the Bill of Rights, which maybe he's never even read, I don't know, which says that the point of the Bill of Rights was to prevent misconstruction, meaning centralization, 
That was the whole point of the Bill of Rights. But for Madison, who wrote the amendment, it was superfluous recapitulation of the principle that the federal government was of enumerated, not inherent powers. He saw no harm in making such a declaration if it would assuage opponents worried, as the historian Paulie Meyer wrote in Ratification, that the Constitution failed to give states sufficient protection to guarantee their continued existence. Uh, but the point was to say that you only have these powers and not any other powers. And that what Madison said did not refute that. Enumerated powers, meaning you only have these powers, not any other powers. And to ensure that it would not upset the balance of power established in the Constitution, Madison rejected the input of state ratifying conventions, which warned, which wanted the amendment to specify the expressly delegated powers of the United States. In the absence of that expressly, the new national government could and would take a broad view of its powers of the country and the states. That's not true. Expressly was deemed redundant because granted and expressly, or delegated and expressly delegated, mean the exact same thing. They mean the, this is the argument, they mean the exact same thing. So, again, Bowie is telling half-truths here, which means he's telling you half-lies. What does, why does this matter, he says? What, if anything, does it have to do with the present? Well, to start, it is a useful corrective in light of emerging theories like the independent state legislature doctrine I mentioned before, which he just repeated what he said at the beginning of the piece, which rests on a state-centric view of the Constitution that falls apart on cursory contact with the history in question. No, it doesn't. It doesn't fall apart. In fact, what falls apart is your stupid understanding of American history. This guy, I mean, anything he writes, uh, you, you could just have any neocon write it. You could have any nationalist write this stuff. It's complete garbage. And it doesn't even match the history of the time. He's cherry-picking everything here and taking it all out of context to make a point. Beyond the issue of tendacious legal theories like the unresolved question of the states... Not only are we living at a moment when several states are moving with speed to curtail the right of their residents to obtain an abortion or live as a sexual minority, but we're also living in a time when the Supreme Court is working to curtail the ability of Congress to intervene on questions of voting rights. On top of the steps the court has already taken to limit the ability of Congress to bind and coerce the states on certain issues of national policy. Well, yes, because those are unconstitutional. The states have complete control over all these things according to the Constitution, as ratified in 1788, and it none of the amendments that have been added would change any of that. Remembering that the Constitution was written in significant part to weaken and undermine state governments is, I think, the first step toward asserting the power of Congress, not just over these states, but also over institutions, like the courts, whose powers run far ahead of our system's checks and balances. I would actually agree with that last statement, and all the crap that's come out of things like the Warren Court in the 20th century. Yeah. Or people like Hugo Black? Absolutely. The courts are a problem. See, the courts for Bowie are a problem right now because the conservatives, quote-unquote, are dominating the court, and so he doesn't like that. So now it's Congress that has to do something about this. But if, say, the left was dominating, he would be saying, well, the, the Congress can't do it. The courts have ruled on this stuff. You see, Bowie's a hack. He is a half-lying hack. A stupid one at that, because anybody with that has any knowledge of this period that's honest would look at this and say, this is, this is complete garbage. This is the most worthless op-ed anybody's ever written on this subject. 
So I had to talk about it. I thank my friend for sending it to me. It made for great podcast fodder. It's very, very funny. Uh, that even anybody, anybody would read. And of course, it's par for the course for New York Times. There are a bunch of dopes over there too. But this is this is really bad. So I'll have to look into this uh, state uh, independent state legislature doctrine. Maybe talk about that. Maybe I'll do that this week too or next week. But I'll get into that too, I guess. Anyways, thanks for joining me on this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow. See you then.